It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. I'm joined by Will Ruger, a former nominee uh, for the Ambassador to Afghanistan Post and an Afghanistan War veteran himself, uh, Vice President of Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute and Vice President of Foreign Policy at Stand Together. Uh, Will, uh, thank you for joining me this morning. We have a lot to discuss about President Biden's foreign policy approach and uh, the agenda that we see developing. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, so let's get right to it. Uh, You know, we saw a lot of executive actions, but action really comes from what happens uh, when the policy doctrine is developed. And we saw a remarkable contrast in the last four years to the prior 12 to 16 years. Uh, When you look at where we are now on the world stage, what changes have you heard, see what concerns you, doesn't concern you, what's practical and real? And that's a lot, but we've got a lot of assessment to do here. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there are real challenges in the world. We have to get our approach to China correct uh, because, you know, that is the most significant geostrategic challenge that we face moving forward. But the problem is, I think, is that we've got most of the rest of our foreign policy wrong over the last 20 years, as you alluded to. Um, and I think one of the challenges we'll see ahead for those of us who would like to see a more America first centered foreign policy is that, The Biden administration looks like it's going to be a kind of an elite primacist restoration. And what I mean by that is kind of moving back to the same approaches that we've seen uh, and that definitely aren't really putting American interests first and rely on a lot of bad assumptions about the nature of the world. That, for example, we need to be more deeply militarily enmeshed in the Middle East, for example, uh, that we need to be continuing to stay in Afghanistan, continuing to go to stay in Syria. In fact, Secretary of State, uh, uh, Biden's Secretary of State nominee, Anthony Blinken, talked about how we, we, did, we made the opposite error, he said, of Iraq, uh, is that we did too little in a place like Syria. And I don't think anybody who looks at Syria policy or Iraq looks like that we should be doing more in places like that. There's, there's a part of this that I would say the political uh, the the politicos don't tackle and that is sometimes there's nothing you can do that is just a reality and sometimes sometimes you have to disengage and that politicians don't tell you politicians seem to always want to give you the answer we're either in or out or some other version. So, you know, does that not, is that necessary or how necessary is it to see, to develop that thought process? Well, I I think that the United States can engage productively. The question is, is can we avoid engagements that actually undermine our safety and the conditions of our prosperity? And so one of the positive ways we can engage is through using diplomacy, right? finding ways to work with those that that are adversaries uh, and our partners to better our interests. Uh, So, for example, finding ways to do arms control with Russia is a good thing. It's a way to use diplomacy to be engaged in a way that can reduce threats to the United States. Um, But the problem is, is that so frequently we've wanted to engage in a way 
that is very little thinking first about unintended consequences, about what next, about exit strategies, but getting into conflicts that then we're, we're stuck with it, that become quagmires for us. I mean, look at, look at the Iraq war. That's a, you know, case number one. Uh, look at the nation-building project in Afghanistan. Look at our intervention in Syria. Look at our intervention in Yemen. Look at what we did in Libya. Unfortunately, while we messed up Libya and it's ca- that has caused a lot of problems, we didn't get deeply involved on the ground there. But there were many who said that the problems of our Libya intervention is that we didn't actually do more. Uh, and that's something that President Obama had talked about, is the mistake was not doing what, what we call phase four operations, stabilization. Oftentimes, those quote-unquote stabilization operations, though, are in a highly destabilized situation in which the United States uh, ends up being embroiled in the domestic politics and the nation-building projects. And those just aren't really helpful for our interests. And so my worry about the next four years is that we'll go back to, again, the Obama, Bush, Cheney, Clinton-type approaches to the world, as opposed to the kind of better side of what President Trump tried to do, which was to try to end our endless wars and to really think primarily not so much about kind of vague conceptions of American leadership or of uh, values promotion, democracy promotion, but about how did it tie into our interests, you know, in terms of the vital ones, safety, economics, right? You know, when you look at sovereign interests, and these are difficult decisions, one of the things I've heard over the years, Will, is that, my opponent is not always my enemy. You use the example of Russia. Russia's complex. They have their interests. We have our interests. And a lot of times their interests are contrary to ours. And at the same time, common interest doesn't mean agreement. In other words, stabilization, the word you used, is an example. You know, in the Middle East, we saw the Abraham Accords, the multiple recognition deals, economic cooperation, embassies and consulates opening up. And what we saw was stabilization developing at a faster rate, which, you know, not always perfect, but stabilization nevertheless. If we start reversing these policies and just inserting ourselves, someone else will step into that vacuum. Well, you know, one one of the big issues, I think, when it comes to, you know, the issue of of stabilization is understanding when the United States really needs to kind of step back from from a place where we're not able to actually uh, accomplish goals that, that are in our interest. So let me, let me just talk real briefly about Afghanistan, right? So Afghanistan is the place where, where, the, where the President Trump um, finally said, look, we're going to make a deal with the Taliban. We're going to end our, uh, our military engagement in that country, ending America's longest war. They went about it diplomatically. Ambassador Khalilzad did a fantastic job, I think, getting to a deal that uh, was helpful for the United States and was something that our adversaries could accept. And I think that, that come May, hopefully we'll see all of American troops out of that uh, project. Uh, but my worry is that, that President Biden might keep us back in. Um, and one of the ways he could do that is by trying to insist that we should keep a counterterrorism force, which means keeping the war going longer. And I hope that the president won't, won't want to do that because one of the things about it is if he sticks with the deal, he doesn't have to own it, right? He can call it Trump's deal. Trump can get the success or the blame for what happens there and what happens to American interests. Um, but if he stays there, now it's Biden's war because President Trump set us on a path 
to getting out of there uh, and getting out of a war that's been going on for almost two decades that has been so costly in terms of blood and treasure that finally I think we came to our senses and said, look, we can't stay there forever. It's just not worth it. Um, and so hopefully we don't see, see a Biden's war in Afghanistan. I hope, I hope that he will continue on with President Trump's policies. But I am worried, uh, given what I see, again, I mean, think about some of the people in the Biden administration, Tony Blinken, Toria Newland, uh, Samantha Power on the NSC. Uh, and that makes me quite worried about where we're headed, because those are some of the more hawkish interventionist members of the Obama administration. And some of the people responsible for us getting into problems in Libya, for example, in Syria, uh, creating problems in Ukraine. This is not a good sign. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm quite worried. On the other hand, there are some good people. Bill Burns at CIA, for example. You hear about the rumors that Rob Malley might be going to be an envoy to Iran. So there are some uh, sig- you know, signals that there could be some hope here. But I am quite worried that we'll be back to that kind of failed status quo approach we had you know, from about 9-11 until, uh, you know, until 2016. From the other perspective, the other perspective being our opponents around the world, China, you know, their interests, contrary to ours in many ways, both economic, political, and military, and all wrapped into one, fair to say, when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, what do you expect or what do you think we'll see from the Biden administration? Well, I think regardless um, of who had won in November, China was going to be the most important and most difficult challenge for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and I think when it comes to you know President Biden, he's going to face this. Um, and, and one real issue is is going to be around you know Taiwan, for example. Uh, another is going to be around the fact that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and now uh, Biden's nominee for that role, Blinken, have talked about genocide in China. And the thing about that is that, you know, once you've, you've said this is what's happening in China, what does that mean for how you're going to react? Uh, and so, you know, when you hear ter- talk about, well, there's genocide going on in China, and that means that we shouldn't uh, buy products from that province of China. Is that really the kind of approach you take once you've called something genocide like that? And so it creates a real difficult diplomatic situation for them. Um, but again, it, it is important, I think, that we understand the kind of nature of the Chinese regime, but not just the nature of the regime as a, as a kind of communist kleptocracy, but China's interests. And I think it's the latter that could help us find a path forward so we can avoid war but still stay strong to protect our safety. Um, because oftentimes we just think about the ideology of a regime or how evil the leader is without thinking about the geostrategic situation, the challenges that they face. So, for example, one thing is that while China is increasing its military power, its economy has grown enormously over the last 25 years, it still faces a ton of problems, right? Uh, it still has a lot of problems projecting power. I mean, we could put power uh, uh, you know, massive, amount of power, massive amounts of power pretty much anywhere around the globe. The Chinese can still not do that. It would be very difficult for China, for example, to successfully amphibiously invade Taiwan, uh, whereas the United States has the capability of inserting troops anywhere in the globe, basically. Uh, it's also that they, China faces big demographic problems. It faces problems with its economy, its environment. It has the problem of ethnic minorities that we talked about earlier. So, 
you know, China is, is one of those things where we have to approach in a, in a kind of realist way, a sane way that we don't say go to immediately Cold War II, but that we also aren't naive about the nature of China and the fact that it is, it is rising. And that means that there are going to be challenges for us in that part of the world. We're going to be watching carefully what happens in the coming weeks and months, and uh, so is the rest of the world, Kevin. We, we, have a, we have a lot of things on the table. The world seems to be getting more and more complex. Uh, before we wrap up here today, and I certainly think we'll have more to talk about in the future, there's a new universe. It's been around for a while, but it is the cyber world the cyber universe, and that has become a part of this. It's weaponized. Mm -hmm. It's weaponized against countries, by countries, state actors, non-state actors, contractors for Russia, official agencies in China and Iran, and it's even weaponized against American businesses. And that is something I think we ignore, that by going after American businesses, American data, no matter what size or what scope, you're actually also attacking the national security of the country and I, I am concerned about the cyber architecture under a Biden administration versus what seemed to be a more aggressive policy to deal with this including moving cyber command into an active command under the Trump administration yeah I mean obviously cyber is an important new domain um, but we can't forget the fact that there's also uh, the danger of cyber threat inflation as well. And, 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 and here's what I mean by that, right? Um, when you've seen, um, you know, these, these issues of these attacks coming through, what we don't understand uh, or we don't appreciate is the, the idea that the United States still has a very robust capability to handle this and that it's not just the U.S. government that is involved and has an interest in protecting our assets, but individual businesses and corporations and banks and so forth also have robust capabilities uh, to deal with that and have a great interest in making sure their systems are secure. So I think that, that there will be an appropriate level of attention paid to that over the coming years, and we should definitely make sure that we're, we're aware of that and engage in, in uh, I think, uh, kind of defense and deterrence of, of opponents. But we also can't let the risk of cyber war simply inflate uh, the kind of um, the Washington bureaucracy like we've seen with the war on terror, like we've seen with Homeland Security, like we've seen in other ways where where there's a kind of overreaction and then concentrated interest promote that in order to uh, essentially kind of reap the rewards of it. And, and that's one of the things that I think a lot of cyber people worry about is that we'll overshoot what we need to do. And of course, we don't want to undershoot. That's much more dangerous. But we also have to be careful about making it like this, a centerpiece when we still have kind of real problems of the fact that Americans are still being targeted, uh, you know, overseas in our conflicts. Those are, are more important in many ways. Uh, getting our China policy right, making sure that we have a Navy that can kind of deter and defend uh, an Air Force that can make sure that we kind of dominate the, the global commons in the skies. Right. Those are the things that I think are still the most important things that we get right, which is not saying that we shouldn't take cyber very seriously. Does that, does that make sense? 
No, it, it makes perfect sense. Look, I'll give you an example. A very good friend of mine, we had a conversation this weekend for months, cyber criminals, and they're not sure yet because now the Secret Service is involved, as are the FBI, had been in his company's computers, and then they did a ransom attack where they demanded a half a million dollars and a penalty of $80,000 a day if they didn't comply. Well, he decided to bring in the authorities, but this happens on a daily basis, but that effect affected the economy of the company, the threats to publish information. Well, to my friend's credit, he said, you're going to publish my corporate information. It's not exactly a threat to me, but these things affect American businesses. You do that multiplied a hundred times over a thousand times over. It's an effective tool against the country. Yeah. And that's something that obviously we should figure out what the best way to police that because a lot of these things are really policing issues as opposed to, say, um, you know, international issues that require. But when, you know, we, say, but when we find state actors, as we have right, before in other cases, and, we don't, and when we find contract actors, as in the case of Russia using contractors in various Eastern European countries that have been well identified and they act, we have to think about, don't we have to think about our reaction to those countries and how we deal with them? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this, this is a modern form of an old, old trick, right, which is espionage, spying, you know, blackmail, these types of things. And so I think that we have a lot of lessons we can learn uh, from, you know, the past when it comes to that and then try to apply those to this new technique. Uh, and it certainly is, you know, a concern, particularly when it comes to, say, states um, attacking U.S. government systems. Um, and either gaining information that they can utilize um, in their intelligence uh, activities uh, or uh, being able to, you know, harm, um, you know, our infrastructure or uh, government operations in other ways. And so, yes, we have to definitely take this seriously. What I'm trying to point out, though, is that there's a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, the threats in Washington wax and wane, right? And, and we, we see how much overreaction is there is and how many times you see concentrated interest take advantage of this uh, at the expense of the taxpayer, whether it was the rogue state doctrine in the 2000s, whether it was the kind of massive waste that we've seen in Homeland Security since 9-11, or when it comes to, I think, you know, really, uh, um, you know, sinking uh, many, many, many resources into this kind of nation-building project, which became a fad, uh, after 9/11, under the under the kind of doctrine of counterinsurgency, and so I think we just have to have to be sensible, right? I mean, what conservatives should do is they should be aware and and not be naive about the nature of the world, but also have some ballast to the kind of uh, excessive, um, you know, kind of passions of any of any kind of uh, uh, you know kind of um, I wouldn't say fad, but but uh, you know kind of threat inflationary approach to the world. Yeah, and that but usually gets this will trouble. be. This will be developing in front of us, as these things often are, but I'm with you on not overreacting as well. Uh, And then, of course, at times you have to realize you're behind the curve. You know, a lot of times, unfortunately, the state actor, the criminal or otherwise, they have an effect, but they're ahead of you because they strike first. Well, I think we'll be having a lot more of these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how the Biden administration uh, goes forward. And and unfortunately, I'm, I'm quite worried that they're going to go backwards uh, as opposed to building off, you know, some of the changes that we saw 
uh, President Trump try to push forward, right, like ending endless wars and really putting American interests at the core, uh, as opposed to, you know, talking about some of these more fluffy ideals that have oftentimes got Americans killed overseas and the taxpayers under a sea of debt and deficits. Well, thank you. As always, look forward to our next discussion. There will be many more. Thank you. Thank you. Will Ruger, uh, he'll be back, trust me, folks, uh, Vice President for Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute and VP Foreign Policy at Stand Together. You can join me live on The David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east on Sirius XM Patriot 125.